0: Reflections on Dante's Paradiso by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part one. How to speak transhuman change to human sense. That's the dilemma in the Paradiso. How to communicate in terms that we can understand and get our hands on to, I want to come back to that thing about getting our hands on it. Because that's not only the dilemma of the poem, it's the, it's the dilemma, the spiritual dilemma, of how do we, as concrete human beings, with our biological and psychological particularity and all that goes with that, how do we move out of that limitation and, and explore this other realm? We must have something that we can get our hands on. And uh, one thing we can get our hands on is Dante's divine Comedy, and there are others. I think of what I wanted because this really applies to something I, I'd like to do towards the end of today's session but I, I better say it now just occurred code to me so I went over and got my copy of King Lear. The very last thing that happens in Shakespeare's King Lear after Lear dies and Cordelia dies and everything the king uh, Shakespeare usually wraps these plays up in in a page or two or three he wraps it up here in about uh, Ten lines, anyway. Uh, Edgar, who's now going to take charge of the of the kingdom and put it back together, he says, "The weight of this sad time, we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say." The play started with with uh, Regan and and uh, Goneril, the two evil daughters of Lear, speaking what they ought to say saying what they ought to say, and it ends by him saying, now we have to say what we feel, not what we ought to say. Well, I'm going to today say some things uh, that I feel, and I am uh, strongly under the impression that there are things I ought not to say. <laughs> <laughs> I <couldn't forget> <laughs> uh, <laughs> good. But I, I just want to put that on the record, so to speak, before we get into it. Uh, Charles Williams wrote uh, a couple of books on Dante and in each of them he says something about the paradiso that uh, is worth repeating. In one he says, the paradiso would be for unfallen natures the normal development of human romantic love. So must remain even for our fallen natures a matter of perpetual study. And in another book on Dante, he said the paradiso is, is the story of an ordinary love affair if things went as they ought to. (laughs) Well, that gives us something to hold on to, doesn't it? (laughs) So what I like to do is explore uh, this notion of fallen natures, what Williams calls fallen natures, and and in in what way are we fallen natures uh, who have to read about this as opposed to experience it, Uh, and how might we move from one to the other. In Canto 1, Dante says, this is line 64 and following, Beatrice stared at the eternal spheres, entranced, unmoving, and I looked away from the sun's height to fix my eyes on her. And as I looked, I felt begin within me what Glaucus felt, eating the herb that made him a god among the others in the sea. The reference here is to a story in pagan literature out of Ovid, a story of Glaucus who was a fisherman and uh, he took his catch one day to this uh, strange uh, grassland that he found and he laid out the, the fish there that he had caught and suddenly they started uh, wiggling and squirming and they wiggled themselves all the way back to the sea and jumped in. And he thought, what is this? And he thought, well, maybe it's something in the grass and he took a little of the grass and he ate it and it made him suddenly feel this longing for the sea. And he turned and went back and plunged into the sea and went through these great transformations at the end of which he says, I discovered that I had a new body and a new mind. And he became immortal. So what Dante is saying is that the eyes of Beatrice made him immortal or perhaps the way we would say this, is that the glance from Beatrice, at the moment of the intense glance from the eyes of Beatrice, Dante's immortal soul is born in him. That that is the birth of what we, I think, in the modern West can think of as the immortal soul. That is to say, for most of us, and this is generalization. I like generalizations myself. For most of us, we... Get first and profoundly in touch with that immortal soul in us at the moment of that glance. That's why, a moment or two after that glance, we start, ta- we start using words like forever and even after death and etc., etc. Uh, because we get in touch with our immortal soul in that glance. And for Dante, the glance is simply a metaphor for the kind of consciousness that the glance brings into being. Robert Frost said, Eyes seeking the responsive eyes, bring out the stars, bring out the flowers, thus concentrating earth and skies. But of course in the 33rd canto of the Purgatorio, Dante was told by the, by the virtues not to look too fixedly. In other words, he was told that now he must look up and see the whole world with that same kind of glance, which causes lots of problems, some of which I'd like to talk about today because I think Dante talks about them in the beginning of the Paradiso. The Paradiso, in fact, fact might be considered the development of that glance to its ultimate potential. And it is for Dante, as I said, a, a symbol for the consciousness that attends it. Well, once that glance has has given birth to to the immortal soul, and I'm speaking uh, loosely from a theological point of view, you understand, once that has happened, one can't go back to the way it was before. As a matter of fact, uh, Glaucus uh, tells his story in Ovid uh, in order to uh, win the affections of the nymph Sila. And uh, it's a beautiful story, but he doesn't win her affections because in the course of becoming an immortal, he also turned into a creature that was a merman, that is to say a fish from the waist down, and had long green arms and green-blue hair and was not much to look at. What's important from a practical standpoint is that you can't go back. Glaucus couldn't go back. He might have traded it right then to win Sila's affections, but he couldn't. But in any case, you can't go back once you've had that experience. Uh, And so Beatrice says in Canto 5 to Dante, Well, do I see how the eternal ray which once seen kindles love forevermore already shines on you. If on your way some other thing seduce your love, my brother, it can only be a trace misunderstood of this, which you see shining through the other. Once he's seen it in the eyes of Beatrice, he may go wandering around and he may see it everywhere, but it's simply a reflection of that. As that was a reflection of we know what from the end of the purgatorio. That is to say, a, reflex- a reflection of the incarnate God. Um. Well, Dante is the one, if if Charles Williams is right, who had this experience, which most of us have had, and who grew to adulthood with regard to it, which most of us have not. I'm not trying to be mean to us, but let's take what William says is true. Uh, Most of us settle for an infantile or adolescent uh, rendition of it and let go at that. So I wanted to compare us with Dante for a while. And any time you do that, you have to be ready to eat humble pie. (laughs) Well, here's here's, here's us. I want to use poets to do this. This is us. This is the poet, uh, Coventry Patmore, wrote a poem called The Angel in the House, which someday I'd like to do at Timino. He says, I've read this here before, apropos of other things, Love wakes men once a lifetime each. They lift their heavy lids and look. And lo, what one sweet page can teach. They read with joy, then shut the book. And some give thanks, and some blaspheme, and most forget. But either way, that and the child's unheeded dream is all the light of all their day. Read page one, close the book. Can't stand it, of course. So we grab it up again, open it, read page one again, close the book. (laughs) Paolo and Francesca, and the first uh, sinners in hell that we met, uh, said that they read the book of Lancelot. And then they said... uh, they read that passage about the kiss and then they looked at each other and then they said, we closed the book. Didn't read any further. Well, those who closed the book after page one, here's the irony, do so, as they're doing so, they're thinking to themselves, ah, oh, now I'm growing up. See? They, think, they think that they're, to do that is an act of maturity, close to close the book. See, Now they're, they're um, they're learning better See? by closing it. Dante did not close it. He's the one that learned better. So Dante matriculates in this in this mystery, but he too must drop out and re-enroll in the course later on. Now this is perhaps an inevitability, perhaps maturity in this journey requires that. The passion of the original experience enter into a dispassionate phase before it can return to the passion at a deeper level. That may be, that kind of dynamic is very often associated with us human beings for one reason or another. So that may be the case. The point is not to stay in that, in that middle ground. And that's what I'd like to spend a good deal of time on today talking about that middle ground and how not to stay there. So the real spiritual maturity or development that happens to Dante with regard to romantic love is one that I would like to have the American poet W.S. Merwin comment upon. He, He speaks of, learning will be to cultivate the awareness of that governing order, now pure of the passions it composed, till seeking it in itself, we may find at last the passion that composed it. So that's the recipe for... Dealing, getting from that dispassionate phase back in touch with the deeper uh, passion, and that also, by the way, is a good summary of Dante's spiritual journey from La Vita Nuova through the Convivio. El Convivio is a it, it renders it into a philosophical idiom from the original. Passionate love with Beatrice—it's rendered into the philosophical idiom and more abstracted, and then in the Paradiso, it comes back again to that to the passion that composed it, and gets in touch with the with the ground of being, with this, in in terms of that same energy. So, to move from the passions it composed to the passions that composed it—is uh, what Dante does in he in his and what connects those for him is beatrice notice that merwin says we must cultivate the awareness so it's it has so i'd like to speak a little on this cultivating the awareness sustaining the commitment i think is another way of, of saying that because it, there will be uh, in the in, in the course of time uh, doubts and misgivings and other distractions. And so the question comes up about sustaining the commitment. And of course it comes up for Dante because he's the one who did not sustain the commitment and then learned later on that he should have and returned and recommitted himself. So Dante explores in this part of the Paradiso, In po- part of what he does is explore the issue of what compromises the ability and willingness to... Commit wholeheartedly to the to the most profound experience of his life, which was the eyes of Beatrice. What keeps us from making from what 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 causes us to shut the book? What keeps us from reading on? And we need to explore that a little bit. Dante has chosen the perfect place in which to explore it. He has, explores it very obliquely, uh, but I think consciously. Uh, But he chooses the perfect place, namely the moon. We're in the sphere of the moon. The first sphere of the eternal spheres is the sphere of the moon. And that's the ideal venue for raising the question about commitment. And so I want to explore that. As I I see it, there are three levels of this question that that are raised here. And they have to do with the moon, although it isn't spoken of directly. First of all, uh, the moon is the, pl- the thing about the moon that we know is that it waxes and wanes. So, the question on the, on the plate is uh, vows. Quite, quite obviously, Dante is dealing with vows and the value of vows and the importance of vows. And in the moon, the moon is the place where there is the waxing and waning of the illumination or of whatever. So, that's a good place in which to talk about vows. And there are two kinds of, uh, excuse me, more than that, three, I guess, kinds of indecision that are dealt with here, and I would like to explore them. The first is what you might call the indecision of exile. Dante, we haven't talked about this much during the course of the uh, Divine Comedy, but Dante wrote this in exile from Florence with a price on his head. They were after him. He couldn't go home. He was living... Uh, there's a beautiful phrase in the Paradiso later on about it that I, don't, I won't ruin by quoting it here, but uh, he was living uh, pretty much uh, you know, on the run, relying on friends and so on. So he is an exile, and he knows the exigencies of that kind of life. And in that, perhaps that is part of what made him the first modern Westerner as well, because now all of us are exiles, although we don't have to uh, carry our sleeping bags under our arms. Uh there is a there is an existential sense of being uh of of wandering and disconnectedness. And that comes with the Western experience, at least where we are right now. And that Dante was the first, I think, to be onto it. It's not unrelated to the eyes of Beatrice, by the way, but that's a long story. Anyway, indecision. Uh Dante says In Canto 4, a man given free choice would starve to death between two equal equidistant foods unable to get either to his teeth. So would a lamb in counterbalanced fear tremble between two she-wolves and stand frozen. So would a hound stand still between two deer. Now, ostensibly he's talking about this quandary in his mind. Uh, What's important, I think, is that he is saying those words in the realm of the moon where the issue is vows. So that regardless of the ostensible cause of that, of that indecision, what it gives us is a, is a symbol for or a metaphor for that paralysis of the will. Wordsworth in the prelude says, "...far better never to have heard the name of zeal and just ambition than to live baffled and plagued by a mind that every hour turns recreant to her task, takes heart again." then feels immediately some hollow thought hang like an interdict upon her hopes. This is my lot. So to be in that place of indecision. This is all to... Dante wants to explore this because he's in the realm of the moon and the issue is vows. And one has to, one has to stay... has to sustain a commitment to that primary experience in order to get from... From the passions that composed it to the passion to to the passions it composed to the passion that composed it. It takes a sustained commitment, and so we have to investigate where we where that the ability to to sustain the commitment is uh, impaired. Something has to be said for indecision. I want to put this in. Uh, Indecision is, in the first instance, a good sign. Uh, for a lot of us, it's important to move into that. There are a lot of people who don't have nearly enough of it, and uh, it would be a great leap forward if they if they'd start feeling a little more conflict, inner conflict. But the point is not to take up residence there, and to define that as our existence. I doubt, therefore, I am kind of uh, a compromise. Actually, I want to follow through on that in just a minute. But before I do, let me mention another f- source of indecision. And this one is an interesting one. Uh, that first one is a source of indecision that is sort of on the uh, low energy side of the uh, spectrum. This next one on the other side, which is if you imagine that like Dante, you've had this intense experience from the eyes of Beatrice, and then the virtues say, okay, now turn around and look at the world that way, that sounds fine. But what happens is, if I begin to look at the whole world the way I looked at the eyes of my beloved when I had that initial experience, I enter at least to some degree into a world that, I don't know what the... Uh, Perhaps I'll conjure up Freud's notion of polymorphously perverse, you know. Uh, A world which is... So indecision uh, uh, coming from this other place, which is, my, my, my. Uh, Look at at the loveliness of it all. See? Why am I limiting myself? (laughs) You see? The point is that if you follow the advice... There, that That is part of the experience. That's another thing that most of us have experienced. Imagine this problem now about vows. That's the first problem in paradise is vows. Now imagine this problem about vows. It's complicated on the low-energy side of the spectrum in the Hamlet dilemma. I don't know. I feel... I don't know what. I'm here in the middle and... and uh, uh, the pale cast of thoughts and I, I can see it both ways and all that. On the high energy side of the spectrum is I'm attracted to everything and everyone. Tremendous. Uh, and Dante refers to both of them in this little these little images here. One of being paralyzed with fear and the other of being paralyzed with desire. Desire going, you know, in more than one direction. Well, in either case, uh, two pitfalls have to be avoided. And Dante speaks of them in Canto 4. If I stood mute then, tugged to either side, I neither blame myself nor take my doubt, it being necessary, as cause for pride. Now this is worth study. This little terse that's worth study. I do not blame myself because it's necessary. It's necessary in the low energy s- side of the spectrum, because until I can feel both sides of any issue, I haven't become fully conscious. I'm just a, I'm just I've repressed part of my being. I'm a partisan or uh, whatever. That Hamlet experience is the inevitable experience of coming to maturity. At the high energy side of the, uh, of the thing, where I'm attracted to everything, that's exactly what the point of the thing is. You take the eyes of Beatrice and then you see the world with that same intense gaze. That's bound to happen. So he says, I don't blame myself. It's it's necessary. That contradiction, conflict, is necessary. But on the other hand, I do not take pride in it. I don't, as many in the Western world did after it took hold, I don't try to build an epistemology based on it. I doubt, therefore, I am. I don't say that is, that is who we are. We are the Hamlet creatures. I don't define myself in terms of that conflict. Dante says, no, don't take pride in it. Okay, well, if I don't take pride in it, what do I do? Well, Beatrice says, I see full well how equal wish and doubt tear you two ways, she said, so that your zeal tangles upon itself and cannot breathe out. And at the end of that canto four, she says, like a new tendril, yearning from man's will, doubt sprouts to the foot of truth. It is that in us that drives us to the summit from hill to hill. So there's the image of doubt. It's that little tendril in a, in a climbing vine that will reach out and grope for the next thing to, to hold to so that the journey can continue. So when someone says, hey, look at me, I have no doubt, you, you should say, too bad. Not good. Not good. Something has gone dead. Dante has this beautiful sense of what the doubt is. So he says, don't blame yourself for it. Don't take credit for it. Don't, don't start defining yourself in terms of that or pride yourself for having been the person who sees both sides of the issue, you know. Enter into it and realize that that doubt can lead you someplace. Now, in the face of the doubt or the, the indecision, confusion, the most romantic thing that can be done is a commitment can be made. As a matter of fact, the only romantic thing there is to do is to make a commitment. That's the only, that's the only romantic thing there is to do. Nothing is... Ro- I, I remember this thing in uh, Chesterton, I think it was Chesterton, who said the way things are these days, and that was a long time before these days, little did he know, he said the way things are these days, the only romantic thing left is mailing a letter. He says, you can't get it back. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only thing. That's the only romantic thing: is to make a pledge in the midst of that uncertainty, and that is the daring to do that that makes the difference. So, to give one's life for something, there are two ways of giving one's life for something: the uh, the way of dying for something and the way of living for something. But to give one's life, having made the decision in the midst of that uh, uncertainty. I like this passage from Yeats back to the romantic love aspect of this. He says, I know, although, although when looks meet, I tremble to the bone. The more I leave the door unlatched, the sooner love is gone. captures both of those things. He doesn't, he doesn't repress the fact that when looks meet, he trembles to the bone, but he knows also, and he probably knows from experience, that the more I leave the door unlatched, the sooner love is gone. To suffer that conflict and to make that commitment... Simon Weil said, The longing to love the beauty of the world in a human being is essentially the longing for the Incarnation. It is mistaken if it thinks it is anything else. The Incarnation alone can satisfy. But in order to get to that place, I must stay with it. I think it has to be worked through as Dante. Now, admittedly, Dante worked it through with regard to, to a woman that had been dead for 25 years. But what he is faithful to is the original experience. Which has been, in the meanwhile, uh, blurred because of the, the exigencies of, of time passing, and that, and in that sense, he's no different from us. The original experience blurred by the exigencies of times passing, his experience and our experience. Then he comes back and he affirms it as the primary experience that put him in touch with something. I want to explore right now. Uh, the thing in Canto five, uh, the about vows, Beatrice is giving, da- giving Dante a, uh, a course on the subject, the essence of which is that God's greatest gift to us is free will. And the best thing we can do with it is give it back. And that's the long and the short of it. Man divests himself of that great treasure of which I speak, and by his own free act. Frederick Nietzsche said, we are the creatures who, whose primary distinction is that we know how to make and keep promises. That's what, that's what makes us human beings distinct. Aquinas said, it's better it, to do something uh, in the context of a vow is better and more meritorious than to do exactly the same thing without the vow. Now, we think the opposite. We tend to think the opposite. We think we tend to think it's more honorable to do it without the vow. Now, I'm sure an argument could be mounted on both sides, but I think it's interesting to at least remind us that Aquinas said it was the other way around. That, that there's something deeper about doing it in the context of a vow than doing it without the vow. Well, so she explains this to Dante, and then she says this. is another little thing to help us as a corrective. Um, She says, Open your mind to what I shall explain, then close around it, for it is no learning to understand what one does not retain. Now, wait a minute. She says, Open your mind, and as soon as there's something in it worth having in it, close it. Now, wait. I thought... (laughs) that the purpose of intellectual life was to keep my mind open. And she is saying that could be very drafty after a while. (laughs) Who needs it? The purpose is to get it open so that you can get something in it that's worth having and then you close around it and digest it. I just think it's a beautiful little thing here. So not, not only do we not pride ourselves in our doubts, Dante says, I must not pride myself because I'm in this state. Neither should I pride myself because I have an open mind. So what? She says, Once there's something in it, close around it. And then she explains about vows, and they are absolutely sacred, and they cannot be violated. However, they can occasionally have substitutions. You can make substitutions. It's possible to substitute. Now this is this is gets very tricky. It is possible I have known people who whose vow to uh let's say their ministry required them mid-course to leave the ministry. I have a good friend who who uh, left his ministry and became a maitre d'. And he said, this is where I shall minister. And he was doing it uh, as a maitre d'. He was a lot closer to the place where Jesus did his than uh, the pulpit. Jesus did his mostly around dinner party. Well, so he left the ministry in order to minister. Now, is that a... Or people sometimes people have to leave their marriage in order to be faithful to to what gave birth to the marriage in the first place. Now, this is very tricky. And because we are so capable of self-delusion in this regard, Dante gives us some warnings. And they are these. Let no man by his own judgment or whim take on himself that burden unless the keys of gold and silver have been turned for him. Namely, get a second opinion you think you're changing this vow uh, if you think this alteration in the in the in the original pledge is in keeping with the original pledge get a second opinion and his what he's talking about is the the church get the church's permission to make that alteration in it but the church is the is the uh, uh, is the normative agent in, in Dante's time for us, it varies, obviously, but the point is get another opinion. second thing is, and let him not think let him think no change a worthy one unless what he takes up contains in it at least as six does four what he puts down, namely, it has to it has to be more demanding that's the other measure if there's an alteration in the vow, it has to be one that demands more of me, not less of me. And finally, he says, let no man make his vow a sporting thing. And then he offers up two versions, uh, two stories, one of uh, the Old Testament figure of Jephthah and the other of Agamemnon. And both are identical stories. And that is, both of them sacrifice their daughters because they pledge, because of a, a need to win a military battle. They pledge that they will, uh, in order to win the military battle, uh, Jephthah does it uh, in the midst of the battle. If I win this, if you deliver the enemies into my hands, I will sacrifice the first creature I see on returning home. It's his daughter. And Agamemnon uh, is told that he must sacrifice Iphigenia to get favorable wins to Troy, and so he does. So there's a little warning here that has to do with uh, something general and something specific to Dante, I think. Uh, If you think of winning these battles as a historical demand, a demand made on these two characters by their historical roles as, as military leaders, then it is saying, and Dante says of these two, they kept their vow and they shouldn't have. That was dumb. You don't keep those kind of vows. And he's saying it is possible to make a choice which is which favors your historical responsibility and uh, does harm to a human being to a to a person with whom you have uh, a, a commitment you must not do that I think he m- might be seeing his own life here because uh, in a sense the convivio was Dante uh, being uh, trying to trying to meet a, re- a philosophical responsibility and uh, in the course of it he abandoned his uh, to what he knew about Beatrice in La Vita Nuova, but that's a little bit of an aside. But he said, you must not casually carry out a vow that's going to do harm. The second thing in this region of the moon that compromises the ability or willingness to make a commitment is what we might think of symbolically as moonlight. Moonlight is the place where a lot of commitments are made and a lot of commitments are broken. Uh, So we're in the region of moonlight investigating the nature of commitments. It's a nice place to do it. Uh, And of course, the question is, does moonlight illuminate or obscure the real situation? Now, there's a little puzzle for you. Is moonlight illuminating or obscuring? Well, Dante has put it in, the, as, in as the first sphere of paradise. Uh, so that's where he sees it. Clearly, it is illuminating, although it is the first sphere and not the ultimate one. In contemporary terms, we could say the issue is the issue of moonlight is the issue of what is the reflection and what is the source? Or what is the symbol and what is the thing itself? Are um, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, is this really a projection? That's part of the moonlight problem. To use the fallen nature idea of, Car- of Williams, our love affairs... A, Fallen natures don't lead inevitably to paradise. Why? Well, because of these moral quandaries in some sense that we're in the midst of these confusions. But there's this other one which is, I think, more fundamental, which is a perceptual impairment. Beatrice in the first canto, line 88 to 90, says, Thus she began, You dull your own perceptions with false imaginings and do not grasp what would be clear but for your preconceptions. Uh, again, I think Dante may be apologizing in some ways for some of the things he said in the Convivio. Uh, the, there was no 14th century version of what we call projections, psychological projections. Uh but some of the things that Dante says in the convivio qualify. This is lady philosophy, after all. And I think, I think one can read that and see in it a pulling back. And often in, in, in the modern context, when we begin to talk about, boy, did I have a projection, what we see is not a deepening commitment, but a pulling back. And a, an a analytical approach to that experience and uh, withdrawing commitment from it. The idea of projection is a perfectly healthy one. But if it causes us us to draw back from a commitment, then we have to question it. In Canto 2, Beatrice says, There we shall witness what we hold in faith, not told by reason, but self-evident, as men perceive an axiom here on earth. Talking about the celestial spheres. She says, there we will perceive not by, not, we hold it by faith now, but it won't be by faith then. It won't be by reason then. It will be self-evident, direct, as we, as we perceive an axiom. The word in, in the Italian is ver primo, the first truth. As we experience the first truth. Mandelbaum translates the first two of these lines. What we hold here by faith there shall be seen, not demonstrated, but directly known. Okay, now we're getting on to this other theme that I want to work in here. Ver primo is that first truth where something is directly known, not rationalized, not celebrated, uh, not philosophized, but a direct, visceral, powerful knowing. And that's what happened to Dante in La, in La Vita Nuova. The Convivio was a philosophical reflection on it. And Dante is having once again to cure himself of that and move beyond it. And he's very helpful to us because most of us are in that middle place. We get into that middle place. We don't know how to get into paradise. We don't know how we we know how to get from Dante's version of our version of La Vita Nuova. To the convivio. I tell you how most of us get there. We start talking about projections. We say, oh well it was a projection. And that puts us squarely in the middle ground. Now we got, oh I see. It was a projection. And there we are in the middle ground. That's fine, except how do you get from there back into paradise? And Dante begins to explore that. I think. And he says when you she says when you get there, it will be that first truth again. Not, not rationalized, not taken on somebody else's word, uh, not uh, any of that, but directly known. Not demonstrated, directly known. T.S. Eliot says, where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? I kind of descent into that middle place, which is, which is the plight of the Western experience. And here we are. We are the information age. Hey, fabulous, good for us. The information age. What do you think St. Francis would say about the information age? What I'd like to do is uh, remind us of uh, Owen Barfield's schema, which I've, I've called on many times before, but I think it's so helpful here. But he talks about original participation which, Because, see, Dante has talked about ver primo, that first truth. Original participation is where that experience in which I know something, not through my mental processes, but I experience direct, immediate participation in the mystery of it. And then Barfield says... Uh, one grows out of that, and the Western world has has is is the prominent example of having grown out of that into this other place. And he doesn't label that as specifically, but the other place I would think I would like to suggest a few ways of thinking of it. It's the proof rock place. Uh, it's the Hamlet place. It's the place for, uh, of Dante of the of Il Convivio. It's what T.S. Eliot called a heap of broken images. If that original, the original participation, it, it, it is the, the imagination is completely uh, involved in that experience. It, it is a symbolic world. The world is alive. But uh, I caution, to, men- to, to use the word symbol in that original participation would make no sense to anybody. The first use of the word symbol is an indication that one has entered that middle realm. See? In the same way that the first use of the word projection is an indication that I've fallen out of that original participation. Think for a moment of moving from that original participation into this proof rock world or the world of broken images or the world of, uh, of, the world of object, subject object push-pull, uh, up, you know, the, the whole kind of duality and causality and all that. The first symptom of that, and, no, I shouldn't say the first symptom, but, but, a, but a salient one of that movement would be the use of, of, of words like symbol and projection. Both of them indicate that there is a distance between myself and the experience so that I'm, it's not directly known anymore. It is being indirectly known. It is being held at arm's length. Now, that's fine. That's a very, that's fine, healthy movement. The problem is nobody that I know of has ever made great sacrifices on behalf of a projection or a symbol. A lot of people have made great sacrifices on behalf of their beloved or of their uh, religion, or whatever it is that we that's on the other side of those two words. So what we have to get in touch with is that something is lost in that in that coming into this other conscious relationship to the process. Okay, what does Dante say on this? It, even though it's it's embedded in the poetry, it is fabulous. It's so it's such a corrective for us. I think. Canto three, verse sixteen and following. These, this is the first time he sees these paradisal creatures. He sees the paradisal creatures. Now I don't know when the last time you saw paradisal creatures, creatures were, but sometimes you see paradisal creatures. Uh, uh, young lovers will see one another, and and this is see, now we're all too self-conscious. But it used to be uh, the the guy would go home, and he would say, you know. She's an angel. Now we're too too worldly wise to say any of that anymore. Too worldly wise for that. Anyway, here's what Dante says. So, I saw many faces eager to speak, and fell to the error opposite the one that kindled love for a pool in the smitten Greek. He's talking about Narcissus. Now this is it. This is really it. We're we we're like the generals. We're fighting the last war. Dante says, I fell into the opposite error. Now, what's it? What's the error of Narcissus? The error of Narcissus is that he falls in love with the reflected self-image. And that's what we're trying to avoid. That's why we have this word projection. We say, hey, that was a projection. I don't want to fall in love with my projected self-image. That's, that's obviously a projection. And Dante says, I fell into the opposite error. I fell into the opposite error. I thought they were projections. And so I turned around and faced empty air. And thinking the pale traces I saw there were reflected images, I turned around to face the source, but my eyes met empty air. I turned around again like one beguiled and took my line of sight from my sweet God whose sacred eyes grew radiant as she smiled. Are you surprised that I smile at this childish act of reasoning? She said, Since even now you dare not trust your sense of the true fact, but turn as usual back to vacancy. These are true substances you see before you. Notice the biting comment. She says, Childish act, even now you dare not trust your sense of the true fact. She's saying, okay, now you've been talking about projections. Now, was that experience that happened to you in the moonlight when you looked into her eyes, earth-shaking or not? Forget all this talk about projection. Let's go back to the experience. Was it or was it not earth-shaking? Well, yeah, it was earth-shaking. Well, then cut it out. See? Quit distancing yourself from it. But the thing is, he's coming in beginning to experience paradise i didn't finish the story of barfield barfield says there's this other thing called final participation so it starts with original participation then there's this middle ground where it's the world as we know it and then he says there's this the mystics tell us there's this other possibility final participation and dante is moving into that place and the 14th century version of the idea of projection is of no use to him when he gets there. He's, it's, it's a totally earthbound idea. You don't talk about projection in the same way that you don't talk about symbols. To talk about projections and symbols in the final uh, participation or in paradise is ridiculous. It's a, it's a simp- so those words come into being as we leave original participation, and they lose their relevance as we leave that middle ground and go into final participation. That's not to say that they're not valuable in the middle ground. They are. But again, if we take them as reality instead of as something to help us mature and then let them go again. Jung talks about the cramp of consciousness. He said that modern Westerners are suffering under the cramp of consciousness. We don't know. It just got hold of us. And what we need is to loosen it up. And that's very scary for us because uh, we're afraid it's going to just... We don't know where it's going to go if we loosen it up. And he says we have to experience that lowering of the mental level. And that's what moonlight does for us. I, I'm going to read Barfield here uh, now and in a few minutes, so I want to uh, prepare the way by, by calling to mind something I came upon not too long ago. Peter Grief said this, in hell, they philosophize about laughter. In heaven, they laugh about philosophy. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so anyway, we don't want to take this philosophy too seriously. Well, neither does Barfield. Here's, here's what he says about leaving original participation behind. And, this, and it's a beautiful image, I think. The ousting of participation is not a logical consequence of a more accurate observation of the mechanical element in any, in any representation. It is a practical one. If we are present at a church service where a censer is swinging, the incense censer, we may either attend to the whole representation or we may select for attention the actual movement to and fro of the censer. In the latter case, if we are a Galileo, we may discover the law of the pendulum. It is a good thing to discover the law of the pendulum. It is not such a good thing to lose, for that reason, all interest in, and ultimately even perception of, the incense whose savor it was the whole purpose of the pendulum to release. Participation ceases to be conscious precisely because we cease to attend to it. But participation does not cease to be a fact because it ceases to be conscious it merely ceases to be what I have called original participation. So, the whole participation experience of life falls into the unconscious. And we live in this other alienated place where now we have discovered the law of the pendulum. And that's a wonderful thing to discover. And the psychological corollary to the law of the pendulum is the idea of projection or the idea of symbol. Oh, that's a symbol or that was a projection. Beautiful, good for us. And what did it cost? What did it cost? Nothing wrong with that discovery. But nobody's going to run home afterwards and write a poem about that discovery. So where are we? How do we get back in touch with that original energy. Expressed religiously, Jung put it this way, the bridge from dogma to the inner experience of the individual has broken down. Instead, dogma is believed. That's that middle ground. It's now a symbol seen as something to believe in or not believe in or whatever, lost that original, what Dante calls ver primo, that original, unmediated, direct, immediate knowledge that is not cerebral. For Dante, the question then is, is it possible to bridge that? Now, Jung's talking about the inner experience in the dogma, uh, but that really is that bridge back into a participation or a world in which I can participate intimately. Is it possible to find a bridge? And that's really what the Paradiso, I think, uh, is groping for and what Dante is groping for here, a way to move back into that paradisal world. And for Dante, Beatrice was his bridge. And the memory of Beatrice was his bridge. So what I'd like to do is have us explore the question, is there one for us? And if so, of what does it consist? And that's where I'm going to rely on that uh, passage in Lear about uh, saying what we feel, not what we ought to say, because um, I think it's going to get me in trouble. But I would like to explore that. Bridge is an interesting image because uh, a lot of times if we fall out of this original participation too abruptly uh, we jump off them uh, so it has a symbolically it has that kind of a, a connection for us but usually it happens more gradually we come to realize that we have paid a dear price for this so called consciousness of ours I always like that passage in, in T.S. Eliot where he says we know too much and are convinced of too little. Our literature has become a substitute for our religion and so has our religion. And there we are. Barfield said, you discover the law of the pendulum and that's fine, but look what it costs you. And for Dante, he went from the what the censor meant, the whole ritual, to the law of the pendulum with the convivio and back into the ultimate meaning of that ritual in the Paradiso. So that's a process that we're invited to look at both by Dante and by Owen Barfield. And then the question would be, what is the, our bridge? Is there a bridge or a link that will take us from original participation from which most of us have already fallen into something called final participation, which Dante calls paradise? Well, Dante alludes to something, and this is where I will get into trouble, but I want to quote to you anyway. It's the Canto II. Oh, you... Who in your wish to hear these things have followed thus far in your little skiffs, the wake of my great ship that sails and sings, turn back and make your way to your own coast. Do not commit yourself to the main deep, for losing me all may perhaps be lost. My course is set for an uncharted sea, Minerva fills my sail, Apollo steers and nine new muses point the pole for me. And then he says, you other few... Who have set yourselves to eat the bread of angels by which we live on earth, but of which no man ever grew replete? You may well trust your keel to the salt track and follow in the furrow of my wake ahead of the parted waters that close back. The little skiffs are to turn back. The boats with keels on them can follow, but even they have to follow right up next to his ship. The boats with keels are the boats that can maintain their poise and direction in those waters. And little skiffs are no longer, can't make it into paradise. Might as well go back. It's not time yet. And the other image that goes along with this, which really dominates, the thing that defines those who can against those who cannot is those who can are the ones who set themselves to eat the bread of angels. Now, if I understand Jung correctly, when he talks about the cramp of consciousness... He's talking about a situation in which one has lost touch with the the ver primo, the first truth, that original knowing, original participation. Dante has broken through to the paradisal or final participation experience by putting all his eggs in one basket, namely uh, Beatrice and the memory of Beatrice. And by doing that, by loading the emotional situation up like that, he has broken through. I, I'm reminded of the, of the Zen master who says, "Ask what enlightenment is, and he says it's when the bottom of the bucket breaks through. It won't break through if you load up eight or ten buckets with a little bit each. You have to load it all up into one, and then you get that breakthrough. So that's what happened to him. Now, what might we uh, load our... What would we load? Uh, If, and I'm assuming, uh, Beatrice said that the problem is perception. The problem is preconceptions and perceptions. That is to say, it is our mental paradigm to which we have habituated ourselves. That's our problem. That's why we can't enter paradisal consciousness. We've too habituated ourselves to this middle ground paradigm. And if it's the paradigm that is the problem, then we have to break through it, and the best way to do it, if we take Dante as an example, is to load up the attack on that paradigm into one spot, attack it in one place. Or to put it another way, if we were to, see one of the things that begins, education, the purpose of education, public education, any kind of education, is is to get us not to ask any questions that the paradigm can't answer. Now let's assume that our education has failed. Uh, in some respects for all of us. And that's a good thing. We have developed questions which the reigning paradigm cannot answer. And we pretty much let those float around. They don't do us any good. They just kind of float there and kind of contribute to this paralysis of the middle ground. If we were to take all the mystery that the Newtonian and post-Newtonian clockwork uh, cosmology has left out of the picture and take all of that mystery and instead of having it just float atmospherically, focus it on one spot, might it cause a breakthrough? If we're going to have a bridge between the original participation and final participation, there are a couple of things that we have to know about. If it is going to be, if our problem in the middle ground is an existing paradigm, it will have to either scandalize or embarrass that paradigm. So we know that about it. It is clearly something that will be outside of that. When Paul said, "He sort of," I, I can just see him setting his jaw and saying, "I preach Christ crucified," because that's what nobody could handle. He said, "I don't, I don't preach any of this. I, I'm preaching the thing that this paradigm can't handle, and that is that the Messiah is the one who died a criminal outside the walls, and that shatters the paradigm." Well. If it's going to shatter the paradigm, it's got to be something that is embarrassing or scandalous to the paradigm. The second thing that's required of this bridge is that it cannot be something that is only accessible to college professors. Okay? We have to remember that. So if you allow me to play around with it a little bit. It has to be something we can get our hands on. Everybody can get their hands on. Or even better, it has to be something that we can get our teeth into. Get where I'm going with that? It has to be something... The most elemental thing would be... If it would be something that has to do with the ultimately elemental fact of existence, which is to eat or be eaten... If it got at that level, if we could find a bridge that was that universal, it would both scandalize the existing paradigm and be accessible to everyone. Well, here's Simone. Well, that's interesting because here's Simone Weil. Well, she was the she she uh, worked in the uh, Renault plant, the automobile plant. Uh, here's what she said: We're talking now about eating and being eaten. Well, first, being eaten. She says, The beauty of the world is the, is the mouth of the labyrinth. The unwary individual on entering it takes a few steps as, and is soon unable to find the opening. Worn out with nothing to eat or drink in the dark, separated from his dear ones and from everything he loves, and is accustomed to, he walks on without knowing anything or hoping anything, incapable even of diso- discovering whether he is really going forward or merely turning round on the same spot. But this affliction is nothing compared with the danger threatening him, for if he does not lose courage, if he goes on walking, it is absolutely certain that he will finally arrive at the center of the labyrinth, and there God is waiting to eat him. Later he will go out again, but he will be changed. He will have become different. After being eaten and digested by God, afterward he will stay near the entrance so that he can gently push all those who come near into the open. So there's one possibility is being eaten by God. We're afraid of being swallowed by that experience. She's talking about beauty, the beauty of the world. If we give ourselves to it the way we're, in the first instance, uh, uh, compelled to, we can be swallowed up by it. In terms of what I'd like to now touch on, it's important to remember that whatever the word ecclesia means, it has nothing to do with uh, buildings, or uh, institutions, uh, or hierarchies, or or uh, rules and regulations, and all the rest of that. So that that's that's a helpful corrective before we get into the rest of this, because this could be misunderstood. I'm afraid it's going to be misunderstood anyway, but. Dante I think it has to be a shocker for us you know like Christ crucified and uh, so here is here it is Dante says those who will have at least the possibility of moving into the paradisal consciousness are those who raise stretch their necks in order to receive the eucharist panis angelicus the bread of angels is a clear reference to the eucharist panis angelicus the bread of angels So, those who might be able to have access to the paradisal truth are those who still, in the midst of all this middle ground confusion and uncertainty, still have the power to stretch their necks out in order to receive the Eucharist. Now, the Eucharist meets the requirements. It is, in terms of the reigning paradigm, it is an embarrassment. It was an embarrassment in the first century by the way, the first century Christians were accused of being cannibals. Uh, And it's utterly accessible, not just to people that have read the great books. So it meets those requirements, at least. And here's what Barfield says about it. The tender shoot of final participation... Has from the first been acknowledged and protected by the church in the institution of the Eucharist. You know, the if you, to, just in historical terms, and I don't mean to to uh, tamper with anybody's uh, theology or ecclesiology or any of the rest of it, but uh, well, I, perhaps I'll say this. I, I mean, we, we need to go back and the to see where the Eucharist is takes its origin. It takes its origin in the moment of where where Jesus has one last opportunity to try to uh, leave with his friends something that has the capability of putting them in touch with the mystery. And he does not leave them with a text, you know, or a set of rules, or any of the rest of it. He must have shocked them They they may have, because the great tradition of these speeches, even the Gospel of John has one, the farewell speeches. Moses made one, you know, and there are those farewell speeches. And uh, what he does is he says, Just uh, take this bread and eat it to me. Just keep eating it. When you get together, eat it to me. Just do that. And they must have. Uh, can you imagine somebody as uh, sophisticated <laughs> as, like, St. Paul? I mean, if, if fortunately, these were, yes, yeah, these are humble fishermen. You know, fortunately, if they'd been anybody else, they would have gotten up and walked out. Well, Judas did. <laughs> and he was about the smartest guy. Yeah, that's, that's just exact. See, he's probably the most educated guy. He got up and said, oh, well, that, that doesn't. <laughs> you know, you don't want to, this, this, look, this looks like uh, a sinking ship anyway, and with that on top of it. The heck with it. Okay, well, anyway, back to Barfield. So the the final participation is, the tender roots of it are in the Eucharist, and he says, for all who partake of the Eucharist first acknowledge that the man who was born in Bethlehem was, quote, of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, and then they take that substance into themselves, together with its representations named bread and wine. That is, after all, the heart of the matter. There is no difficulty in understanding it as long as enough of the old participating consciousness survived. It survived in my grandmother. I mean, it's not as though it died a thousand years ago. It is only as this faded. It is only as a substance Behind the appearances, gradually ceased to be an experience and dimmed to a hypothesis or a credo that the difficulties and doctrinal disputes concerning transubstantiation began to grow. See, we, It was no longer being experienced, and we had to cerebrate about it. Then he goes on, But by the physical act of communion as such men can only take the divine substance, the name apart, directly into the unconscious part of themselves by way of their blood. And in this we participate in two ways, both outwardly as a mere appearance and therefore an idol and inwardly by original participation via the blood. That's all unconscious. Thus, the relation between original and final participation in the Eucharistic act is, as we should expect, in the utmost degree complex and mysterious. If we accepted all the claims made by Christ Jesus concerning his own mission, we must accept that he came to make possible in the course of time the transition of all men from original to final participation. And we shall regard the institution of the Eucharist as a preparation, a preparation we shall not forget, which has so far only been operant for the sidereally paltry period of 1,900 years or so. Sidereally paltry period. A cosmic eye blink.